Loving Father, please teach us how to respond to your wonderful grace, the promises and the covenant that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, Please shape us as your people, even now as we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've never uh, bought a lottery ticket before and I don't intend to, um, but a few times my uncle bought me scratchies for my birthday. Um, There was a lot of scratching and a lot of mess, uh, but I never won anything. Such hopes, such greed such disappointment. Uh, In 2014, someone bought a lottery ticket in Cairns and won the $2 million jackpot, Uh, but they've never come forward to cash it in in that six years. Maybe they died, maybe they lost the ticket. Uh, Maybe the thought of all that money freaked them out and they decided they didn't want it. What were they thinking, we might think? They struck it lucky, but they never cashed in their riches. Well, uh, we've started this series in Genesis and found that Abram won the jackpot of spiritual riches. Uh, God chose him, God called him, made extraordinary promises to bless him and bless the world through him. We saw him respond to those promises by believing them, by faith. He trusted the promise, he followed the promise, and when he stumbled or doubted, God forgave him and God reassured him. This week, we'll see there are further lessons for Abram to learn about how to cash in on God's promise, how to make it your own and start enjoying God's blessing now in this life. If you've heard the message of Jesus Christ and his call to follow him, then you have won the lottery. And if you now have come to see yourself as someone who has sin that needs dealing with, and you've seen Jesus as your saviour, then you have hit the jackpot. But I want to say to you tonight that you also need to learn how to cash that blessing in. There are quite a few people who call themselves Christians who see that they've won the lottery in a sense. They understand something of God's grace and that gives them a good feeling when they think about it. But they sort of put the ticket in their pocket as if it's something to be pulled out when they get to the pearly gates and just ignored in the meantime. I'll just put that in my pocket and when the time comes I'll pull it out. But if you have God's covenant promises in Christ, you need to claim your win now. Uh, The ticket is worthless just in your pocket. You should be cashing it in now in this life. Uh, God gives us these promises and, and his covenant by grace, but it's not delivered into your lap while you're just doing something else. The promises call for faith and the covenant calls for you to actually live in a relationship, in a friendship with God, you need to cash that grace in, even now as you live your life. And I think these chapters in Genesis can help us to understand how to do that. Now these chapters, uh, you might say, are MA rated. So just a little uh, um, uh, warning, before we if you haven't read them yet, they can d- contain troubling episodes of great personal cruelty uh, towards women in some cases, Uh, great depravity, uh, mention of private body parts, um, incest, and then a whole lot of death and destruction at the end in chapter 19. So things are messy and troubling uh, in this passage, but we also see God working with his people to teach them something about living in relationship with him, even in the mess that we find here, which is true to the real world. The first episode might remind us of how much we have to learn. Chapter 16 shows us the weakness of God's people. God, after all, doesn't choose heroes to carry his promises. He chooses ordinary weak people who sometimes get it wrong. 
A key element in his promise to Abram was that he would have descendants. You know that because one of you had lollies thrown at you earlier in the service. Descendants was a promise. But Abram's wife, Sarai, had not been able to conceive a child and now she was quite old. She decides in chapter 16 that it's time for her to step in and make sure that God's promises are fulfilled. She takes matters into her own hands. What does she do? She sends her slave girl in to sleep with her husband in order for the slave girl to have a baby on her behalf. Now, um, actually, in, those, in that day and age, that was quite socially acceptable to do that, to use one of your slave girls as a surrogate mother if you weren't able to have a child. But in Sarai's case, this is a failure of faith. It sh- I think it should have been fairly clear to her that God intended to give Abram through the normal godly means, which was through his wife, even though that was going to take a miracle by this stage. Sarai should have kept trusting God instead of taking matters into her own hands. When she gives the girl to Abram for him to sleep with, it's described in the same way as when Eve gives the fruit to Adam to eat in the Garden of Eden. Uh, She uh, she gave, he took, uh, he ate. Um, They were trying to take control. And so what they did was faithless and sinful. Not surprisingly, it goes badly. Uh, Hagar gets pregnant and then she starts despising Sarai, her mistress, uh, and the blaming begins. Sarai says to Abram, this is your fault. Abram says to Sarai, well, she's your slave, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, of course, slavery is not right, um, but Hagar broke something of a contract here when she tried to get above her mistress and despised Sarai here, which was wrong. So Hagar was at least partly in the wrong. Abram shows no leadership here, so he was in the wrong. And Sarai was also in the wrong, not only for thinking this scheme up in the first place, but also then um, mistreating Hagar when things started to go bad. The family is now a mess, and in the middle of this mess, there's a baby about to be born. Hagar runs away towards her home in Egypt, a pregnant woman on a hot, dry journey. God finds her by a spring, And he tells her, no, your destiny lies with Abram. Go back, he says to her. Um, But your child will be blessed. Not the covenant, but many descendants nonetheless. And not the land, but he will have a wild kind of freedom nonetheless. Ishmael will be okay. And Hagar acknowledges that even though she's going back to an ugly situation, she has seen God and God has seen her and her situation. She hasn't quite won the jackpot, she's not won the covenant, but she's won the supplementary um, instead. So the dysfunction and the failures of faith in the covenant family here show us the kind of people that God chooses to work with and the need for God's people to learn and grow in their faith and learn how to function as God's people. This was over 400 years before the law was given to Israel, of course, Israel came out of Abraham, so Israel didn't exist yet. The law had not been given to God's people at this stage. God had not given much instruction as to how to live as his people. Abram sort of only just met him, in a sense. But some things, I think, should have been clear to him uh, about right and wrong. So we see here that God's people are weak and they need to grow. It's the same today, in a sense. I mean, we have much more revelation Uh, from God about himself and about how he wants his people to live we've got a whole bible full now but God is still willing to show his grace in our messes we're still weak we still need uh, to be taught 
So we see the weakness of God's people in chapter 16. In the next chapter, God restates his covenant with Abram and he calls for a tangible sign for God's people to say, yes, I'm in. I'm I'm in a relationship with you, God. Uh, But the sign was supposed to indicate a deeper response than just a mark on the skin. So chapter 17 is the call of God's covenant. And I'll just read you the first uh, couple of verses which Terry read. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So that's saying that being in a covenant with God is about having a real relationship with God, walking before him. Walk before me, says God to Abram. And walking before the Lord every moment of the day, um, there is God and you are walking in his presence. That is supposed to make a difference to you and to change you and shape you if you actually know God. And so he says, be blameless, therefore, which doesn't necessarily mean completely sinless but at least it means having a sincere relationship with God and having an integrity about you as a friend of God walk before me and be blameless that's the basic gist of the covenant and the way that the covenant works is grace from God and response from people so there in chapter 17 as we read God restates his promises to Abram his grace in even bigger terms I'll make nations of you, kings will come from you. Verse 7, I'll establish my covenant with you and your descendants as an everlasting covenant. Uh, So he's starting to use everlasting language now. Um, And the key to it all, at the end of verse 8, I will be their God. That's the key to the covenant. I will be their God. So these are big promises which speak of eternity and point forward to the kingdom of Jesus Christ and a relationship between God and his people. This is God's grace. He's promising undeserved blessing to to Abraham and then through Abraham to the world. And he expects his people to be caught up in this promise and make a deep response. um, Abram's first response to the news that Sarai would have a son, verse 17, was to laugh. Um, Wouldn't it just be easier to do it through Hagar's son Ishmael? I mean, I've already had one child through her and that was a bit of a cock up, but anyway... Um, Wouldn't it just be easier just to use that? Abram was nearly 100. Sarai was nearly 90. Uh, He was a bit incredulous that God was still going to use Sarai. God says, no, Sarai will have a son. And you are to call him Isaac, which means he laughs. Because you can hardly believe it now, but in a year's time, you'll be laughing for joy. And God renames Abram and Sarai. He calls them Abraham and Sarah. Not a huge change in the name or the meaning, um, But the point is, if you are in the covenant and you are a friend of God, then you are a new person. It changes you and changes your identity in this world. And he gives Abraham the sign of circumcision as the sign of being in the covenant. Um, Now, what's the significance of that? Well, um, as we know, the promise is about having many descendants, being very fruitful and in reproduction, etc. So the sign of the covenant involves the part of the father's body that makes the babies, uh, if I could put it that way. So as the family grew and as reproduction occurred, the covenant promise was being kept and there would be a reminder there for God's people. So all the males around Abraham had to be circumcised. God was promising to bless them all. And from then on, any male babies had to be circumcised at eight days old. Now, why at eight days old, little baby needing to be circumcised? 
Why infant circumcision rather than uh, circumcision at puberty, which happened with some of the surrounding cultures when a, when a boy became a man, uh, they were circumcised. It's because this was a sign of what God was saying to the person, not a mark of the person's achievement, but of what God was promising. And so it was a sign of grace rather than works, and the sign was given before the person was even old enough to respond. This is about what God's intentions are towards this person. But of course, being marked for God was supposed to be the sign of a deeper response, not just a mark on the skin. That is, a heart that was consecrated to God and his covenant. Um, Not just a bit of skin cut off the, the males, but walk before me faithfully and be blameless was the response. Be my people in more than just a name and more than just a ritual, but in a relationship of real trust in your God, a friendship with God. That's what was being called for here. We see God teaching Abraham something of this friendship in the next chapter, chapter 18, which is about the privilege of God's friendship. At the start of chapter 18, uh, three visitors arrive from heaven. Um, This is a little bit later. Um, Three visitors arrive from heaven. It's the Lord and two of his angels, all of whom are in male human form. Uh, It's not Jesus. It's not a proper incarnation as it were it's not the trinity but one of the people is god manifested temporarily in the shape of a human man they're on a mission in the world they've come into the world for a reason but they drop in on abraham and sarah on the way abraham gives them a proper welcome here in chapter 18 which becomes the bible's prime example of hospitality Um, Abraham is generous, he's attentive, he's super respectful, he's humble, he can't do enough for them, he he runs around sort of waiting on them. Um, It's a bit unclear at which point he works out that this is the Lord, but probably fairly early in the piece, I imagine. Um, And so he's very excited about this and and, um, uh, he's very attentive. Perhaps you can only just imagine if the Queen came over to your house to visit. Um, sort of unannounced you know you just look out your front window you're watching telly and all the cars arrive and out she gets and they roll out a red carpet towards your front door and can you imagine the panic and the um, you know I've got this stuff I'll get the vacuum cleaner out quickly and all that sort of stuff well you probably can't imagine God arriving at your tent to pay you a visit in human form Uh, even bigger deal so Abraham's running around he's very attentive Sarah was somewhat less welcoming. Um, Of course, she was probably doing the hard work. It was the heat of the day. She was in the kitchen, less excited about the whole thing. But still, she was far less respectful towards God, eavesdropping behind the tent flap, laughing in unbelief when the Lord said she would have a baby in a year's time. And so God calls Sarah out. Why did she laugh? Why doesn't she believe my word? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah comes out, and can you believe it? She lies to God's face. I didn't laugh, she says. God said, yes, you did. I'm God. I ought to know what happened behind the tent flap. Uh, Crazy. She's a big contrast to Abraham's humility and reverence. She seems to lack a fair bit of respect here, but God wants her to have faith as well, so he addresses her as well, and he calls her out. She needs to learn to reverence God and to trust his word also. She also must walk with God. Well, after enjoying Abraham's hospitality, the three men rise to leave and uh, go to carry out their mission. They're heading towards Sodom. And Abraham walks with them a little way. 
Now, we're told of a chat that God has with himself in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 18. And he basically says to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And then he reasons with himself. He says, well, um, he needs to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So perhaps I should teach him something about righteousness. I'll talk to him about what I'm about to do. So God involves Abraham in a conversation about what he's about to do. It's a revelation of God's righteousness. God tells Abraham that he has come to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah to see what needs to happen there. He's heard reports about what's going on there. And Abraham starts questioning him about what he's planning to do. It's not so much that God is just hell-bent on indiscriminate destruction and Abraham sort of talks him down from that. It's more a matter of Abraham exploring his God, getting to know his God by asking him God about his plans. Would you wipe out the city if there were 50 righteous people there? Would you wipe out the whole city if there were 50? God says no. Well, what about 45? No. Well, what about 40? And what about 30? And what about 20? And what about 10? Would you wipe out the whole city if there were 10 righteous people there? God says, no, I would spare the city for 10 righteous people. Uh, the point is that that's how careful God is in administering his justice. It's very measured. God is in the least, not in the least bit indiscriminate. He's very careful. He takes everything into account. He knows everything. That's what Abraham discovers about his God here. He always does what is absolutely and exactly right. Our God is a righteous God. And notice the privilege that Abraham is given in this chapter. Not only does God visit him personally, but God then confides in Abraham and allows Abraham to discuss his plans with him and even intercede for these cities. God is treating Abraham like a friend. They've become sort of partners in righteousness as Abraham explores God's plans with God. Quite remarkable, isn't it? And Christians should be reminded here of the incredible privileges of the intimacy that we have been given with God. God invites us to talk to him about his plans, to intercede for the world. He's made us a royal priesthood. He's given us great access to him in prayer. He's revealed his will to us and he invites us to talk to him about that. To sort of, in, I mean, not, not a, a conversation like I might have with you, but it, to converse with God about what he has revealed to us he's planning to do. It's a great privilege of friendship with God, partnership with God in his plans and his righteousness. Well, the next chapter sees God's righteousness played out. Chapter 19 is the working of God's righteousness. Sodom is the place where Abraham's nephew Lot has come to live. Um, and this is obviously partly behind Abraham's interest in what God is going to do to the city. Um, God had said, I will spare the whole city if I find ten righteous people there. Um, when it comes to the crunch, there are only four people there who are willing to believe God's word and leave the city, Lot and his daughters and his wife. They are saved while the city is destroyed. But as we'll see, it's a bit hard to see where Lot and his family uh, actually stand. When it comes to the crunch, you are either a friend of God or you are an enemy of God. And the angels go to Sodom and find that it is full of obvious enemies of God. The report that they had heard in heaven was true. 
When the two angels arrive in the city, they meet Lot at the city gate. He pleads with them to stay at his house instead of staying in the town square. Whatever you do, don't stay in the town square tonight. He knows the character of the city. During the night, they're in in Lot's house, uh, and every man from all over the city, young and old, surround Lot's house. I'll read you verse 5, which is the most, the juiciest verse. They call into the house to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. They are willing to break down the door to get to these two guests of Lot's. And the two angels have to strike them all blind in order to to slow them down. Now, it's noted elsewhere in the Bible that Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was victimising the newcomer, the complete opposite of hospitality. They actually want to uh, completely degrade these guests in their city. They preyed on the vulnerable. Uh, And, of course, rape is often used as a weapon of power, a means of showing dominance, Uh, it's likely there was an element of that here. So some people try to argue that this passage has nothing to do with homosexuality as such. It's about violence, not homosexuality, they say. But the homosexual element here is surely supposed to add an extra level of depravity to to the picture that is being painted here of Sodom. Uh, In Jude, in the New Testament, verse 7, it says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. So that element is also here, that sort of sexual depravity. So Sodom and Gomorrah have become classic uh, examples in the Bible of sin at its worst and of the certainty of God's judgment if you rebel against him. God cannot let sin in any form go forever, whether it's lust or it's violence or it's greed for that matter or it's pride, God will act on sin. He investigates it thoroughly and he knows exactly what needs to be done and he will do something about it in his time. Well, as Abraham watched the fire come down on Sodom and Gomorrah and the smoke come up, um, what he was seeing was that God's righteousness was at work. Remember, he had talked through the whole scenario with God beforehand. Uh, he, he had been included in God's plans. He had an inner, inner insight into God's righteousness and God's thinking before God took this step. He knew that this is a God who takes sin and righteousness very seriously. And so when it happened, that's how Abraham must have seen it. But of course, there is also mercy here. There are four people, actually three in the end, who are saved even though they are somewhat ambiguous allies of God's. And that is Lot and his family. Um, In chapter 13, we saw that Lot actually chose to move near to Sodom. He got his choice of where to live. He said, I I think I'll go and live near Sodom. Uh, He ended up living in the city of Sodom itself. He knew the nature of the Sodomites, but he stayed there anyway. His hospitality towards these two guests hardly compares with Abraham's hospitality in the previous chapter. And when the mob demands to rape his two guests, what does Lot do? He offers his two virgin daughters as substitutes instead. It's a stunningly awful gamble for him to attempt. When Lot is told to gather his loved ones to leave the city before it's destroyed, his sons-in-law think that he's joking and they refuse to go. That's how seriously they take their father-in-law. When it's time to leave, he hesitates, it says. And when he leaves, 
He pleads for a small neighbouring town to be saved so that he can go and live there rather than going all the way to the hills out of the way. He likes living with all the fun people, unlike Abraham who lives separately up in the hills. Lot's wife, as you've probably heard before the story, uh, upon leaving Sodom, looks back to Sodom. They'd been told not to look back. And she is turned into a pillar of salt, a monument to personal ruin. She left her heart in Sodom. She wasn't really on God's side. And so God saved Lot for Abraham's sake. But you could say that Lot chose God's side, which is how in 2 Peter 3, Lot can be described as righteous. He wasn't a complete Sodomite. But it seems that he was deeply divided and and a compromised man. Did he walk with God? Was he a friend of God? It doesn't seem like that. So even though Lot is saved from Sodom, what kind of legacy does he leave in the end of the story? At the end of chapter 19, what kind of blessing does he receive? Well, last little juicy detail in this story, he's living in a cave with his two daughters at the end of the chapter. His two daughters decide to get him drunk and they both sleep with him one night after another in order to get pregnant by their father. And the result is the nations of Moab and Ammon. Pretty freaky story. What are we to make of Lot? Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? It seems deliberately ambiguous. And of course, it is very ambiguous when somebody sort of receives God's salvation, but then doesn't walk with God. Uh, When somebody who claims some association with God then spends their life flirting with the world and doesn't mind being in company with sin, in fact, perhaps prefer that because it's more interesting and fun and shows little affinity with God's people associated with God's people but hardly a friend of God. That's a very ambiguous position to put yourself in. When we look at Lot and then we look at Abraham, perhaps we can see the influence that God is having in Abraham's life now. God is teaching Abraham how to cash in on his promises and the main blessing of this covenant relationship with God is God himself. I will be their God. Walk before me and be blameless. Friendship with God is the main blessing of the covenant. And so as he walks before God, Abraham is learning faith. He's learning generous hospitality. He's learning how to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right. He's learning how to be blameless, uncompromised as God's friend. You cash in on the promises of God by engaging personally with God by faith. The great encouragement for us as Christians in the New Covenant is that God makes even better allowance for our sin in the New Covenant. After all, who walks before God completely faithfully and is totally blameless? Who has a walk with God that looks like that? Can anyone really cash in on the promises of God by being God's friend? Are you good enough to do that or am I? Well, no one under the old covenant was good enough to claim the eternal magnitude of God's promises, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, no one. And is there anyone here whose walk with God is that good? Are we actually able to cash in on these promises? Well, only one of us is able. God sent his son to be the friend of God, perfectly faithful, perfectly blameless in his relationship with his father, perfectly generous, perfectly righteous, completely uncompromised and 100% on God's side all the way through. And Jesus came and cashed in on the eternal promises of God. It's in his righteousness 
that we can be righteous because he lived and died for us. And so now, um, as weak, fallible friends of God through Christ, you and I can actually claim eternal blessing even though we know we're so unworthy. And still, the key to it is knowing God himself. I don't know what your walk with God is like. Um, maybe you don't really walk with God and you're just here to sort of hear what's, what it's all about. There are some things that we've seen about God in this passage that we can really appreciate about him, which help us to realise what a good thing it is to walk with him. We've seen God's grace to very dysfunctional people, including those outside the covenant like Ishmael, to whom God is kind here, and even to Lot, who is saved in this sort of mixed way in the end. We've seen God's plan at work beyond our understanding involving miracles. He's well able to carry out what he said he would do. And we've seen God's righteousness and justice in these chapters and that he will not let the wicked go unpunished. He is a good God. He's not a toothless tiger. He's not scared to act, but he does so so carefully and in such a measured way. It's not like he's, he's, he's um, off the leash or anything like that. And this God calls us to be his friends, his partners in righteousness and grace. What an incredible privilege it is for you to be called into this covenant and for you to be called into this sort of relationship with God. The mark of God's people is not a mark on the skin. It's not circumcision or a tattoo of some kind or some ritual or membership of some club. It's what the New Testament calls the circumcision of the heart. That is, the mark of being God's person is to be transformed by knowing God personally and experiencing his righteousness and his justice and his love. Knowing God himself is the real prize. That's the real inheritance and the real mark of the covenant. So if you want to know God better and you don't know how, by all means, come and talk to me after the service. If there are things in this passage that you just don't understand and you thought, I didn't get an adequate explanation of that, then again, please come and ask me about it after the service. You can form a line. (laughs) We'll pray and ask God to help us as we walk with him. Loving Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing about you and encountering you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you call us into a relationship with yourself, even though we're so unworthy. You've made provision for our sin and we can walk with you as your friends. We thank you for the immense privilege of being partners with you in righteousness and love and mercy that you involve us in your plans and you talk to us about them and we can talk back to you. Lord, we pray that you would um, help us to appreciate what a wonderful thing it is to know you and to walk before you. Please help us to do so blamelessly, without compromise, to belong to you and be your people. Uh, And in the process, Lord, help us to cash in on these wonderful blessings that you have promised to us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.